The ETF Edge podcast is sponsored by Invesco QQQ, supporting the innovators changing the world. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Welcome to ETF Edge, the podcast. If you're looking to learn the latest insights on all things exchange-traded funds, you're in the right place. Every week, we're bringing you interviews, market analysis, and breaking down what it all means for investors. I'm your host, Bob Pisani. With sector rotation in full swing this year, today we're taking a look at the big debate over market timing. Does it work? What are some of the bigger pitfalls and perils of trying to figure out when it's right to go in and out of the markets? Here's my conversation with Kim Arthur, the CEO of Maine Management. Wes Krill is the head of investment strategist and vice president at Dimensional Fund Advisors. And Dave Nodding is the director of research at ETF Trends. Kim, there's a, a lot more interest in market timing uh, and rotation uh, this year. I don't know if it's just in the air. Is that because we've seen so much rotation in different sectors this year with, you know, the reflation trade coming to fore and tech kind of taking a back seat? Yeah, Bob, good to hear your voice. Um, yeah, there's definitely been uh, a lot more in the air, as you say. If you really can, can pinpoint it, it started at September 1 of last year. And just to give you a, a real kind of like a real live data point there, from September 1 of last year, value through Friday, value's up 19%, one nine, growth is up two. And how about the MAG5, Microsoft, Amazon, Apple, Google, and Facebook, they're down one. They're down one during that time. Why has that rotation happened? I think we think that uh, after people realized there was not going to be a double dip recession, Rates bottomed in August, and as they saw them starting to move up, that's when you get the rotation that goes into the value and cyclical plays yep. and the small cap. Um, and it's been historically it's happened with that as people start to see real rates. We went from negative 45 basis points in the 30-year to where we're now positive 11. So all the tailwinds were all lined up for it to happen, and we're seeing the results, and we think it probably continues for a while. Now, you've got this sector rotation ETF, SECT. You move in and out of sectors, uh, ETF sectors, not stocks. Uh, and it's been outperforming the S&P year to date because you've had, uh, it seems like, increased bets on banks, energy, and small cap ETFs. H how do you decide when to rotate the portfolio? I don't mean like describe what's happened. I mean, when do you actually rotate more into energy and rotate out of technology? What, what, what criteria do you use? Just briefly describe that. I don't want to know how the market is doing it. What do you, how does, when do you decide to get in now? Yeah, great question. So there's two parts to it, Bob, in our process. The first is valuation. We're big fundamental value people here. So we've got all kinds of data on looking at sector size and style for its historical valuation, its price to book, price to price to uh, 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 price to earnings and dividend yields. So we look at that, and it gives us a menu to choose from. But the menu alone is not enough. You need to have a catalyst. You've got to have a catalyst. So what we looked at with the financials, for instance, is a steepening yield curve typically has been very very bullish for that. And then you throw on top of it where they were prohibited from buying back stock, they were green-lighted in the middle of December. So that's another tailwind for them. Or on the energy side, you had two big things going on. You had 7% of the global supply taken out of the global area during the pandemic. And we know with the, with the vaccine rollout that's going on here, demand is going to pick back up. 
So demand was going to exceed supply. But even more importantly, here in the U.S., we have an administration that is curtailing supply on federal lands where there's 20 percent uh, of the of the supply that comes out of that. So, again, it's, it's a process for price valuation and then a catalyst. You know, Wes, um, it's interesting to hear him talk about this. This kind of makes sense in terms of why rotate into banks, why rotate into energy. But Dimensional Fund Advisors has been studying market timing efforts for, for decades now. Could you summarize what you have found out? Summarize the research and the academic literature on market timing for us. Yeah, thanks, Bob. Thanks for having us on today. I think that just the greater kind of body of work that's been conducted on researching market timing strategies really goes back for about a half a century now, both from academics as well as practitioners. And whether they're looking at it through the lens of stock picking, uh, whether it's looking at the performance of active mutual funds, or whether it's looking at asset class timing strategies like managed futures types of approaches, by and large, the evidence points in the same direction, which is that these strategies tend to underperform passive benchmarks. And I think that, you know, to Kim's earlier point, uh, you know, it's important for investors to be cognizant of the potential opportunity costs of trying to time markets because for something like the value premium, we see that historically it has often showed up in large bunches very quickly. If you look back at the calendar year average for value versus growth, values outperform growth by about 4% per year. In years when that premium was positive, the level of outperformance was over three times that amount. And you know, we see it even when we're just looking at the broad market. You know, if I look at the growth of wealth for the US stock market, starting in 1970, going through uh, the next 50 years, your total growth of wealth, if you missed out on the best day for the US market, just one single day, your growth of wealth dropped by about 10%. And so again, it's important for investors to understand what the potential implications might be if they do try and outguess markets. And this is consistent with a very competitive marketplace. It's incorporating millions of trades every day, accounting for hundreds of billions of dollars. And that's a very uh, comprehensive price setting exercise. And that's what you're up against when you do try and outguess markets. Yeah, I want to keep that. Uh, I wonder if we could put that up, that hypothetical growth of $1,000 invested in the S&P, because in my mind, this is the easiest way to explain to people why market timing doesn't work very well. And the way you do it is just look at, if you're not in the market on the best days, now, you, Wes, you provided this information to us, and I thank you for it. So this is the $1,000 invested in the S&P 500. Uh, pick it on the first day of 1970. The total return you had today would be $138,000, believe it or not, <laughs> in 1970. That's $1,000 invested in 1970. Just buy and hold the whole thing here. Uh, Wes, does this include uh, dividends, the uh, total return there? That's a total return, right? So it includes dividends, correct? Correct. It is total return. So this is a good reflection okay. of okay. You know, so, just what investors so can capture. Let me just finish the point. I'll jump back in, Wes. So if you take out one day, the single best day in the last 51 years, you only have 124,000 instead of 138. If you take out the five best days in the last 51 years, you only have 90,000 instead of 130. If you take out the 15, you have 52 instead of 138. And if you take out the best 25 days, you have 32,000 instead of 135,000. This is, to me, the easiest. The problem, of course, as, as you have written before, Dave, my old friend, you've written about the folly of market timing. The problem is nobody knows what are those best 25 days that are out there, Dave. And, and so 
Therefore, this goes, logic tells you that it's very difficult to figure out market timing under any circumstances, Dave. Yeah, and, and I think this is also behind the rise of low volatility investing because, of course, the math works the same way on the downside, too. If you miss the 10 or 25 worst performing days, you obviously massively outperform on the upside. And that really gave birth to a whole raft of strategies that sought to exclude all of the outliers and, you know, quote unquote, smooth out your ride. Uh, and, and those strategies really haven't quite delivered the way people wanted them to in the sort of recent spikes of, uh, you know, VIX over 20. So, so I think it's reasonable for people to look at the market, see these outliers and figure that there must be a better way. You know, history would suggest there really very rarely is a better way. Uh, but, you know, it's the Lake Wobegon problem. Nobody wants to be average, even though they know on average they're going to be. And certainly if you're a professional yeah. investor who's being paid to advise clients, it's very difficult to build that business on the back of trying to be as average as possible. Right. Now, Wes, uh, long term, the stock market tends to outperform. It's, it's up year over year. The S&P 500 since 1928 has been up 72 percent of the time. That's a pretty good average, Wes. But as you know, there are there are years and in some cases, many years when it underperforms. Owning the broad market and there's your statistic. This is the people ask me, you know, is the stock market a good investment? I say three out of four years, it tends to move up, but it doesn't mean it goes up every year. So owning the broad market, Wes, seems to be the right play. But if market timing doesn't work, and I think we can, can agree that it'd be difficult to make it work, is there anything that does outperform? What has what your studies shown? I, obviously, you guys have emphasized value in small caps. Uh, is there any evidence long term that that would be a better strategy than just owning the, the broader market? What, what outperformance can you possibly get out of the market? Yeah, certainly one way you could outperform markets is if you could predict when those negative years are going to occur. Of course, this uh, half century of historical evidence suggests that people can't consistently do that. But then the key point for investors to remember is you don't have to outguess markets to outperform them. And this is a function of not all stocks having the same expected return. Just like when different investors go to, to get a loan from the bank, they're not all going to receive the same interest rate. It's similarly for different stocks, they don't all have the same rate of return that's demanded by investors. And we can see just through the principles of valuation that by combining variables related to the price of a stock and what we expect to receive in the future in terms of cash flows, we can identify these differences systematically, these differences in expected returns across different stocks. And by emphasizing these stocks with higher expected returns, so stocks that are smaller in market capitalization are lower in valuations, for example, price to book, and higher in profitability, uh, we can identify a subset of the market with higher expected returns and outperform just by using market prices and without trying to outguess or figure out where the market got things wrong. Yeah. Uh, the other thing I think that's very important to point out to people, and I, they ask me all the time about this, what's the evidence? And I say long-term, stocks outperform bonds. You want to own generally, unless you're towards the very end of your life, you want to have a heavier weighting in stocks than bonds. Uh, and I'm, I wonder if we could put up that full screen, a, a dollar return since 1926. Again, uh, Wes is, and Dimensional has provided this to us. It's rather remarkable. Uh, if you put a dollar uh, in 19, going back to 1926, uh, inflation would make that dollar, you know, it, it essentially it's pumped it up to $14. But long-term government bonds, remarkably only $175. I find that amazing. But uh, a dollar in a large cap uh, uh, portfolio would net you a little over 9,000. 
uh, small caps 25,000. Amazing two things here, Wes. Number one, uh, 175 in long-term government bonds. Is a, uh, that's sort of incredible. But uh, small cap over very long periods of time still outperforms uh, big cap, even though the last 10 years that has not uh, been the case uh, overall. Yeah, it certainly hints at you know just the awesome power of markets and the ability for equities to help investors to get to their goals in many ways. If those goals involve how much their current savings can be used to, to afford consumption in the future, there's certainly an element of growing uh, your invested savings. And the stock market has been a very great avenue. Just in the U.S., when back in time, you're looking at about an average return of 10% per year for U.S. stocks. And that is a very important contributor to many investors' long-term goals. And again, it gets back to this, this premise of trying to guess when the markets are gonna be negative. Well, if you end up missing the days when they're positive, those numbers you just showed on the screen might look substantially less impressive for an investor who is on the wrong side of the market timing. Yeah, the, so Kim, let me, let me just, um, I mean, I think Wes's point is very well taken. It's very hard to beat the S&P 500. Your sector rotation fund, is beating the S&P this year. You've been around a little more than three years. It's done well. It's not outperformed the S&P in three years. I see it up 50% versus 56% for the S&P 500, but it's it's not bad overall. Um, you have a slight overweight, it looks like, in financials and healthcare this year, and an underweight and an overweight in energy, too. Um, I, I guess the, the issue is it, we still have demand for this kind of rotational uh, 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 vehicle at this point. Uh, and it, it seems to me like it's, this is having a little bit of a moment. Does this happen because we suddenly have seen these sort of very quick moves in sectors as, and, and as a result, we have people talking about it more? Or is this just a part of a Reddit meme thing where people are suddenly just more interested in playing around with the market and active management in general? So, so, Bob, first of all, what I, what I would say is I totally agree with the whole narrative here that, you know, we tell our clients this, it's time in the market, not timing the market. But under the cover there, again, we think that valuation does matter. So you need to, you can rotate from expensive factors into cheaper factors, expensive sectors into cheaper. Um, let's not forget back in the 2000 bear market of the NASDAQ from March of 00, to uh, March of 02, before the recession took everybody out. The NASDAQ was down 61%, but the value line composite index, it's multiple, went from 10 times to 18 times. As one of your other colleagues on CNBC, Jim Cramer says, there's always a bull market somewhere. So what's happened with our uh, SECT, which like you said, it's only been out for three years now, uh, but it has a separately managed account that's been around since 2002. So we have a lot longer sweep of time. From 2002, it's beaten the S&P because we think over time we have been able to rotate into it. But remember, since 2016, that large cap NASDAQ concentrated FAB 5, that dominated everybody's returns. If you didn't know that, you were not going to outperform that overconcentration, we don't think is healthy over the long term, and we think that's what you're seeing happening now as, as NASDAQ is now starting to underperform and some of these other cheaper factors, these cheaper sectors, are outperforming. So uh, we, think, we think that, as you said there, you know, energy, financials, value, cyclicals right now, uh, they have more tailwind to go 
as I mentioned, I may have mentioned earlier, the growth value, again, if you just take that factor, uh, that it, in, in a 10-year sweep from, from 1995 to 2005, value went from, uh, our growth went from being really cheap and then in 2000 to really expensive, and then they cut it in half again. So these big cycles do happen in the past, and they will happen again because of the economy and price. And Bob, I think there's opportunity here for active management, and I think that gets missed in some of the, the, the noise here, right? I think Kim's exactly right. The large cap growth space in particular has been effectively impossible for active managers to do much about. Uh, and, and if you look at things like the Standard & Poor's SPIVA reports, they would suggest that over the last five years, effectively no managers have really been able to carve out a, a, a hole there that they can dominate. But if you look at things like mid-cap growth and small-cap growth, active management's actually having a great run on a one, three, five-year basis. The average active manager has actually beaten their benchmark if they're focused on that mid- and small-cap space. So I, I think we, we paint the market with this very broad brush. And, and to Kim's point, I think that belies a lot of what's going on under the hood, and there's always opportunity. Yeah, and, and Wes, maybe you can put an, a, a, a bullet point on that. Um, you guys... Uh, you very closely to index style investing, but you are active managers. You do have a value tilt, small cap uh, tilt uh, as well. I guess the question is, how do you get people away from the get rich quick Reddit thing where you can see, despite all the rhetoric about we've been oppressed and <laughs> we're, we've been disadvantaged, uh, it, it does evolve into a get rich quick scheme, a lot of this Reddit stuff. How do you fight against that? That, that dopamine rush in the brain and, and encourage people to get rich slow. Do you feel you're making progress there? I've been doing this for 30 years and some days I feel like it, I think people sort of get it and other days I feel like, oh, well, we're back to get rich quick pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah, certainly you start by appealing to the financial science and the financial science to your point suggests that you know, we can manage investment solutions in an active way. And what I mean by that is you can take the best benefits of an index type of approach, the broad diversification, relatively low turnover, uh, low expenses, and then you can add on an active component to it that helps manage risk and also increases expected returns by emphasizing segments of the market with higher expected returns. And you know the good thing about this is the premise behind pursuing these different premiums or emphasizing stocks that are lower in price and higher in profitability you know, that's a higher expected return proposition 365 days a year. I wake up every day believing that if I pay a lower price for a higher expected future cash flow stream, then that's associated with higher expected returns. And the evergreen nature of that logic is a really important component of the financial science. And then it just comes down to implementation, you know, making sure that you're doing this in a low opportunity cost way where you're managing uh, really the day-to-day -day changes and, and the costs associated with pursuing these premiums. Yeah, very well said. Uh, and um, I, I want to pursue that a little bit more in the podcast. We've got to go, guys. Now it's time to round out the conversation with some analysis and perspective to help you better understand ETFs. This is the Markets 102 portion of the podcast. They will be continuing the conversation about marketing timing with Wes Krill from Dimensional Fund Advisors. Wes, thanks very much for joining us again. And I, I want to just pick up on our conversation earlier about market timing. I think everyone agrees that it generally doesn't work. And yet what's amazing to me is just how prevalent it is. Um, it, it doesn't ever seem to go away. 
I'm wondering if you could expound on, on why that is. I mean, it seems to me there's a behavioral economics answer to all of this. Market timing scratches that itch uh, to get a little thrill out of, out of some new outperformance, that dopamine rush from getting uh, a bet on a horse, on a stock, on a sector, right somehow. Is there a behavioral economics explanation? Because we know the academic evidence is market timing doesn't work, and yet there's a whole legion of people that still want to convince the world they can do it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, market timing comes in different forms. For some, it might mean picking stocks. For others, it might be trying to time segments of the market, figure out when they can get in and out of the markets, uh, preferably to avoid losses, I think, in, in some cases. Um, when you look at the evidence, broadly speaking, it suggests that active management or trying to time markets by and large, doesn't add value over passive benchmarks. That's not to say that you don't end up seeing eye-popping results when you look at individual mutual funds. You know, that's one thing we see with enough people flipping coins in a ballroom. Sooner or later, you're going to have someone that gets 10 heads in a row just by chance alone, even if there's no actual skill. And so I think that part of the allure for trying to time markets is sourced in seeing some of these investment strategies that, at least historically, have had really strong returns compared to the market. Uh, but again, if we just look at how competitive the marketplace is, the amount of trade volume within equity markets, you know, I think I've mentioned before that on an average day in 2020, equity markets saw about $650 billion worth of trade volume. And that's really what you're going up against when you try and outguess markets. So a daunting proposition, to be sure. Yeah, I'm a, an efficient market hypothesis guy, uh, too. But we both agree there are there are micro inefficiencies uh, in the market that enable people, you know, to do better on one day over the other. The problem is just, you know, it's sort of like the inability to get people to sit still in a room. They can't. The humans have this need to just keep moving around, trying new things. We're innovative species, uh, and that includes buying and selling stocks. You know, Bogle's old old line to don't just do something, stand there. Um, it, it is a really hard thing to to do on a, a you know, just in terms of what human beings are are, are like. You know, Wes, one of the things that's interesting to me is um, one of the reasons that I have found the active management community really despises the academic community is that the academic community has called out the active management community over their failure to outperform over the years. So understandably, you know, their livelihood is threatened by the academic community. But another thing I have noticed is one of the reasons the academic community has a fairly low opinion of the financial press, which would be me, by the way, uh, is that we often give way too much publicity and credence to active advisors. And it's true. I mean, a, a, every financial reporter has reported on the latest hedge fund manager outperforming and suddenly made him a superstar going back into the 1970s uh, on, on this. So, you know, I keep coming back to this behavioral level where people want to see who's winning and losing, the horse race, as we like to call it. Um, and, and yet, it's very hard to get people to be disciplined about how they believe in things, how they should believe in things in the long run. How do you feel about the 10% rule? A lot of people say, look, if you're really got the itch to try to do market timing or to day trade or actively manage, um, you know, on a, on a really act, almost daily level, uh, take 10% of your money and play around with it. But for, for heaven's sake, keep the, the rest in a relatively safe area. Does that advice make any sense? I'm trying to figure out a way to let people scratch the itch and not be idiots. 
So when I think about just the active landscape and you know, implementation versus academics, even if we take sentiment out of it, there is an adding up constraint, right? This is known as the arithmetic of active management, a term that was coined by Bill Sharp many, many moons ago, where if you look at the overall marketplace and you take out passive, you're basically taking out a pro rata slice of the market. So then what is left over is the market. The return on that portfolio of active managers is the rate of return on the market before fees and expenses. Now we know after fees and expenses, in aggregate, they have to be getting less than the overall market. So that constraint really does apply at all times. That's not a model, that's just simple arithmetic. So then the question for investors is whether they can identify, certainly in that population of active managers, you're gonna have both winners and losers. And the question is, can you identify the ones ex ante, not ex post when you've seen their returns, but can you identify them in advance, which ones are going to outperform and how you disentangle skill versus luck. There's been a lot of academic uh, attention devoted to this and, and they find that generally you can't extricate those two components of skill versus luck. So then it comes down to investors and maybe how sensitive they are to the potential opportunity costs. We do know that missing out on the best days in the market can greatly harm an investor's long-term growth of their savings. And so it's where you land in that trade-off uh, versus the potential opportunity costs and the potential gains if you actually can identify a skilled manager. Yeah, I want you to go back to Sharp's comment earlier because Sharp's famous paper is, is really one of the groundworking pieces of uh, research that's ever been done. Now, it, go back and say this a little slower so people can absorb this lesson. I, it's critical to understand this. Your point is that w take out the passive part of the market. What, what you've got left is the active research part of the market, the active investment part. Uh, and, and Sharp's, summarize Sharp's insight about that. Just explain that to people. It's very important they understand that. Yeah, a simple analogy is if I have a bucket of paint, let's say it's blue paint, and I take out a scoop of the paint, I'm gonna call that the index portion. Index funds at this point are much larger than a scoop of the market, but if I take out a scoop of the blue paint, what color is the paint that's still in the bucket? Well, it's blue. And that's the way to think about the slice of the market that's left over for active investors once you take passive approaches out, which means that in aggregate, the rate of return is the market. So for one manager to have a higher rate of return than the market, it has to come at the expense of another active manager. It's not coming at the expense of passive managers. This is what we talk about with that adding up constraint. So if the total return prior to fees and expenses on that portion of the market is the market's return, that means what's left over is the market minus average fees and expenses. So that adding up constraint yeah. means that you've got to be able to find one that is going to outperform at the expense of the others, and it's not clear investors can do that on a going forward basis. Right, so the important point is that passive management has been increasing, which means the pie that's left for the active managers is smaller, meaning it's getting more difficult. Is that a correct way to look at it? Well, certainly we've seen growth in index funds. I think at this point they're about the size of the active management landscape within equities. Um, but, you know, again, it really comes down to, it doesn't really have an implication for whether you would choose necessarily one versus the other. I think the increase in index fund assets doesn't mean that active funds are going to be any better or worse going forward because, again, no matter how big the passive segment of the market gets, you still have the adding up constraint for the active managers. And so they can only win at the expense yeah. of each other. By the way, how would you characterize uh, dimensional funds? Would you, I always, people ask me about dimensional, I say, well, it's like index plus, 
uh, you ha you're an active manager, but you're closely hewed to indexes. In your own words, how would you describe uh, Dimensional's investment philosophy? Certainly we start off with what we think of are the most appealing attributes of index investing, having broad diversification, low turnover, low expenses, and then we combine that with an implementation that is active. And what I mean by that is we have a daily process to assess expected returns and risks of securities in the portfolio, and then you're using that daily process to keep an emphasis on stocks with higher expected returns in the market. So you can keep many of the appealing attributes of passive investing, but target higher expected returns than the market. And again, that's just using market prices. This is an approach to outperform markets that does not involve trying to outguess them. Okay, uh, I want to uh, let everyone know that if you want more information on dimensional funds, uh, I've been following them for many, many years. Uh, they've got a lot of very, very solid research behind them. Uh, I've got some Nobel Prize winners, including Eugene Fama, that's on their board with them. Uh, the, the site is dimensional.com. Is that right, Wes? Got that right? Dimensional.com is the site I believe people so. want to go yes. for. Some I haven't been to the public site in a while, but I believe, I'm pretty sure if you Google Dimensional Fund Advisors, you will be taken to our homepage. Yeah, Dimensional Fund Advisors is where you want to go. There's very good stuff that's on the public part of the website for people who want some basic information uh, on investing, and I mean long-term investing, and uh, I think very highly of the research uh, that Dimensional has put in over many, many decades uh, a lot of work has gone into uh, understanding the markets by these guys. Wes Krill, thanks very much for joining us. Wes is the Vice President of Research at Dimensional Fund Advisors. Everybody, again, a healthy, happy, and safe trading week. Invesco QQQ believes new innovations create new opportunities. Here's to greater possibilities together. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc.